This is the New Yorker Radio Hour, a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. It's very exciting to be having a conversation with someone when they have that revelation right now. He's really smart. He's actually someone who's kind of savvy. You know, every parent. Maybe looking at this case, it could be an interesting process piece. Okay. Welcome to the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. Without a doubt, one of the big sensations of 2015 was the musical Hamilton, which opened just about a year ago. I first heard about the show from my colleague Rebecca Mead a long time before that, who was writing a profile of its creator, Lin-Manuel Miranda. You can sum up Hamilton by saying it's a hip-hop musical based on the life of Alexander Hamilton in which all the founding fathers and mothers are played by actors of color rapping. But that might sound gimmicky, and this show is anything but. It's got a real vision of America, and it takes our history very seriously. It actually takes as its inspiration Ron Chernow's authoritative biography of Alexander Hamilton. Lin-Manuel Miranda wrote the music, the lyrics, and the book, and he stars as Hamilton. He spoke with Rebecca Mead at the New Yorker Festival this fall, and what you'll hear right at the top is a video of the cast doing the big number, My Shot. Here we go. I'm past patiently waiting, I'm passionately smashing every expectation, every action's an act of creation. I'm laughing in the face of casualties of sorrow. For the first time I'm thinking past tomorrow. I am not going to my shot. I am not going to my Oh, that looks good. <laughs> it looks <laughs> it looks really good on a big screen, yeah, doesn't it? it? Does. <laughs> um, so, so the first time I saw uh, any performance of Hamilton was in a workshop production in the spring of last year. That was a heavy, heavy. Yeah, that was the first time we'd staged Act One. The first time we'd tried the costumes. Hmm. When did you first see it? When did I first see the show? When did you first see the show? When was it? The, I first saw the show you... with the public. So how was that? What did you, what did you I see? I burst into tears at the end of the opening number. Um, <laughs> there, are things you, there are things you can't possibly see um, from on stage. And I always preface my notes to the creative team when we were working on the show. I said, these are notes from the lobster inside the boiling pot. <laughs> um, I have no perspective at all. Um, but what killed me was at the end of the opening number... Alexander Hamilton is the only one looking out and everyone else has their heads bowed in prayer. Um, And it just killed me. Um, It's One, it's telling you that they're all going to be narrating the story. Um, They're going to be shifting their roles as storytellers over the course of the night. And they know the ending. And Hamilton doesn't know yet. Um, So it's just moving on a very profound level. And then, you know, kept on crying from there. (laughs) (laughs) When you're in it, do you have moments that are particular high points for you in performance? Does it change? Is that, do you always... It changes. It changes every night. And now that we're settled into a long run, 
um, the audience is just as much a part of it for me. Um, we have a front row of people who have won tickets for $10. Um, so their energy is amazing. And I can see faces 14 rows back. So I keep track of what you're feeling. <laughs> I keep track of, um, you know, the lady in the third row who's asleep but woke up in time for Dear Theodosia. <laughs> and you know what? I'll take a sleeping audience member over a texting audience member any day of the week. I don't know your life. I've fallen asleep at great shows. I was just, this is the first time I sat down all day. Um, and, uh, but I, I'll keep track of her. I'll keep track of the two kids over here who I can tell got the cast album because they're starting to sing along. And that's starting to be a part of the process. But I'm, I'm, I'm keeping tabs on all of it. Um, in terms of what's fun to perform, um, you know, I was a very... My parents worked a lot. I was a very self-entertained childhood. I think most artists grow up in, um, in a world of sort of benign neglect. Um, you have to be left to your own devices enough to make it up. And um, when we were rehearsing Take a Break, which is a song in Act Two uh, where Eliza and Angelica are trying to get Alexander to go upstate and stay at the Schuyler mansion and take a break from all his political troubles. Um, Tommy says to me in rehearsal, he said, I can just picture seven-year-old friendless Lynn being like, sorry, ladies, I can't make out with you. I work for the president and I got to go have an affair with this hot lady over here. Um, there's lots of moments like that where it's like I'm, I'm holding a sword and shooting a gun and it's, it's seven-year-old Lynn wish fulfillment. <laughs> On a very real scale. Um, and then there's the parts where I just kind of get to glory in, in, the, in the performances of my teammates. I mean, my rap battles with Davi Diggs are the most fun I have on stage because they're written and I win them. Um, <laughs> but also he brings something new every time, even if it's physical or tiny or he makes a comment. Um, if I make a comment on something and someone makes a reaction in the audience, he looks at them and kind of goes, oh, I saw that. Um, I'm always on my toes. So the joy of, of these collaborators and this murderer's row of actors keeps it fresh uh, yeah. pretty, pretty much every night. Um, one of the things that is so, so striking about the show is, of course, the way that you've cast almost all of the principals, save King George III, um, are, are actors of colour. Yeah. And... Uh, you know, and it has this tremendous theatrical effect of, of saying without explicitly saying, you know, this story is ours too. Yeah. Um, when did you decide that that was something you were going to do? Was that, was that a decision you made early on before you'd even started casting in your head? Or was it something you just started casting, oh, there's Chris, there's this, and David is this, and then you realised what you were doing? I, I, I would love to tell you there was a bold political pronouncement. Uh-huh. We're going to change. There wasn't. Um, yeah. Honestly, it has its roots in the fact that I did conceive of this as a concept album first. So even in my first read-through of Ron's book, I was casting in terms of voices. I wasn't picturing the people on money when I was reading the book the first time through because reading it as Hamilton's story made me see it as a hip-hop story. And so when I read the name Hercules Mulligan, I just thought, well, Busta Rhymes plays Hercules Mulligan. <laughs> That's the best rapper name I ever heard that isn't actually a rapper name. Hercules Mulligan. Um, and, you know, when I got to the part where the governor, the corrupt governor of New York is named George Clinton, um, and I thought, oh, there's going to be a P-Funk 
rap battle, <laughs> and on the cast album it'll say, introducing George Clinton as himself. <laughs> um, these were all bold, I, I mean, but these were all ideas in my head as I was reading the book for the first time. So it was, it was never a question. It was, it was who were the best people to sing these songs, which are hip-hop and R&B songs. Um, and Chris Jackson was really George Washington since In the Heights. Um, I don't know of an actor, maybe James Earl Jones, who has more moral authority on stage. Um, that's just what he has. So, you know, it's this mix of actors we knew about writing to their strengths and then writing to these characters. Um, and the fun of this is determining what do our founding fathers sound like and what do our founding mothers sound like. Uh, in writing Angelica Schuyler, I, I decided she's actually the smartest character in the show. So she has the most complicated and intricate raps, but she also sings these arias um, because her brain just literally works faster than everybody else's. She meets Hamilton, who is this whirlwind and dynamo, um, and she reads him. She reads him in a second. She goes, I know what this guy's after. I can't give it to him. I love him. My sister can be with him, and just reads the whole thing and then slows down the action to explain her thought process to us. Um, and when Renee Elise Goldsberry walked in the room, it was the first actress um, who... That's actually the speed at which she speaks. Um, it was the first person where it wasn't... She didn't deliver the music like, look how hard I'm working. She delivered it as if this is just the speed at which I speak and I trust you to catch up. Um, and uh, and it's, it's really thrilling to watch. As, as I'm sure everybody here knows, Billboard magazine called it the best rap album of 2015. <laughs> yeah. um, and and, and I'd just, I just like to say, uh, say thank you for proving that the best rap album of the year can... You can have a whole rap album and not have the word bitch in it. So thank you very much oh, for that. Um, um, you talked about having to cut a line uh, here and there. You also had to cut entire bits uh, in the process, and not just from the public to Broadway, but earlier on. Was there anything that you just you really hate that you had to cut? and you just? Oh, I don't hate that I had to cut any of it, honestly, because, you know... It exists, it doesn't go, and it's not like I hit empty trash on my computer and it's gone forever. It exists. Um, there, were, um, there was a whole third rap battle about the issue of slavery um, that didn't make it into the final thing because it brought, because frankly, none of them did anything about slavery. Um, even Hamilton, who was an abolitionist and got the importation of, um, of slaves banned in New York through the Manumission Society, um, he didn't put it above his financial plan. Um, he, they, there was a moment where Quakers, uh, two Quakers from Pennsylvania, introduced a House motion to ban importation of slaves. And it was on the House floor. Um, actually, Joseph Ellis writes really eloquently about it uh, in either Founding Brothers or one of his other books. Um, and um, Madison let it, be on the house for the day, and they talked about slavery for three days. And then he passed a motion um, because he was the majority and he made shit happen. They called him the scalpel. Um, he uh, passed a law saying, we're not going to discuss this until 1808. So they literally kicked 
the ball down the field for future generations. They said, we don't know what to do, and we're not going to solve it. Um, but I, I wrote a rap battle about this uh, as if it were happening in Washington's private quarters. And it's Jefferson saying, you know, the Constitution clearly states that the states have to wait until 1808 to debate on whether to ban the slave trade. And whether you like it or not, that is the compromise we made. Wait. And, you know, Hamilton's trying to jump in. Um, and, and they get into it. And he says, so, so let's say we cure prejudice. Like, do we send them back to Africa? Do we designate a state? Like, what's the solution? And then Hamilton throws Sally Hemings in his face. Um, and then Madison was like, oh, are we talking about extramarital affairs? Do you want to have that conversation? Uh, and then Hamilton shuts up. And then Washington says, we're not going to say anything. Um, and it was enormously cathartic to write it uh-huh. um, because this was something obviously you wrestle with when you write about these men um, who wrote great things and also had this other legacy, lived within this system that was horrible and abusive. Um, and it just brought the show to a screeching halt. Um, it just, you know, and, and this is a show that really thrives on momentum because it's sung through. So we're going to put that out. Um, we're making another mixtape, and I'm going to put out the demo so that you can hear it. Um, but it didn't work within the context of the show. So that one hurt because mm-hmm. um, it, was, it was really cathartic to write. Um, and, uh, you know, people miss the Whiskey Rebellion. The Whiskey Rebellion existed at the public um, within Washington's farewell song. And it, it's fun to see Washington go... F- Washington and Hamilton go from rebels to putting down a rebellion. And it was them going, you know, you are outgunned, outmanned. And Hamilton in the back going, pay your f***ing taxes. Um, <laughs> it was a nice little moment. Uh, but it, it, it ultimately sort of muddied up the really audacious act, which is Washington stepping down after two terms and creating the precedent of a two-term presidency. And we really wanted to, to focus on that. I know when you were rehearsing, I was watching you and Chris rehearsing that scene of uh, Washington's farewell address when you break into the words of Washington. And I remember you saying, God, I just feel really patriotic after reading this. I mean, has working on this show made you feel differently about America, made you feel uh, differently connected to your country? Yes. My country too, by the way. Yes. I'm an immigrant. We get job. The job. Yeah, you do. Uh, Applause for writer. Rebecca Mead, isn't it nice? Isn't it so much better than sitting alone? What good is sitting alone in your room? Um, uh, Yes. Honestly, um, I think the secret sauce in the score of Hamilton is my enthusiasm in learning all of this for the first time. Um, I knew the basic facts, but I did not know about the inner lives of these characters. I did not know about their home lives. I had to learn all that stuff to write it. And um, the fact that you could take the rap battles of our show, put them in the mouths of different talking heads, and put them on MSNBC tomorrow, and they would be just as relevant, gives me hope. It's heartening to me to know that the this was never a perfect union. It's always been striving for a more perfect union. And the beefs between Hamilton and Jefferson are the beefs we're always going to have. We're always going to push for too much 
government power and then we're going to push back against it. We're always going to go too far in helping another country and then we're going to go, oh, we got to take care of what's going on at home. Those are the rap battles that we have in our show. How much do we get involved in the affairs of other states? How much does our government pa- have power, does our government have over our lives? And how much are they allowed to tax us and how much are they not? We're always going to be fighting about these things. Um, that gives me comfort. Um, it doesn't, and, and, and frankly, um, the fact, because, you know, people say, this is the worst, you know, go on TV, you know, they, they get ratings by telling you how apocalyptic the situation is. Yeah, Jefferson called John Adams a hermaphrodite <laughs> in the election of 1800. John Adams countered by saying, Jefferson died. You should vote for me. <laughs> Counting on word traveling slow because it's 1800. <laughs> Jefferson died. You should vote for me. By the time Jefferson, you know, makes sure that everyone knows he's alive, it'll be too late and they'll have voted for me. That's dirty politics. So, you know, don't tell me that it's worse than it's ever been because it was always bad. Um, but here we are in another election cycle and the show is relevant on an entirely other <laughs> level and even... From the public to the uh, to Broadway, there, there's a little change here there that amplifies that the message about immigration. And there's now the point where uh, Hamilton's foes tell him to go on back home to where he came from. Right. Um, what do you think about this rhetoric that's going on about immigration in this current? It's uh, so old. Planet? It's so old. This isn't new. That the one thing that writing the show has given me is is real perspective. Pat Buchanan was singing this song in 1996. Um, He did The Mexicans Are Coming to Kill Us All, that famous chorus. It is an old song, and we've heard it. Um, And there's always going to be a politician there to grab that fervor, um, whether it's when it's felt in public sentiment, and run with it and and make a stab at it. That's about all I can say about it. Um, It's just, it's it's, it's a part of our politics just like anything else's. Well, that's, I'm afraid, all we have time for, but... Thank you, Lynn Manuel Miranda. And thank you, everybody, for being here. Lynn Manuel Miranda, the creator and star of Hamilton, talking with the New Yorker's Rebecca Mead at the New Yorker Festival. Today, we're hearing three of the highlights from that festival, including Mark Marin and the comedy team that created one of the funniest and raunchiest comedies on television. We're just two gals cleaning in our underwear for an hour. What gals? We? Us gals. I'm not doing that, dude. What? Why are you shushing me? Alana Glazer and Abby Jacobson of Broad City. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. Stick around. Welcome back to the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. I am extremely excited to uh, introduce you to our guests here, Abby Jacobson and Alana Glazer. The two fabulous Jewesses who <laughs> created Broad City on Comedy Central. I have to say, as a television critic, I watch a lot of web series, and most of them are not good at all. But this was an extremely unusual example. It was smart from the beginning. That's television critic Emily Nussbaum, and she's a fan of Broad City. Abby Jacobson and Alana Glazer, two struggling improv comedians, created Broad City as a web series. 
And now it's going into its third season on TV with supposedly Hillary Clinton as a guest star. Jacobson and Glazer play characters much like themselves named Abby and Alana. And they're, they're kind of a latter-day Laverne and Shirley. They've got lousy jobs. They screw around. They get stoned all the time. And they love one another more than any of the various men that come through their lives. It's a brazen but above all joyful take on being young and heedless. So, without further ado, four and three and two and one, Abby and Alana. Yay! We are so what? excited to be here. Oh! I didn't know so you were doing chic, that whole thing. I, I know. Like, wow. That was lovely. Thank you so much. I, I want to start with a little rudimentary backstory just about the show. Um, I, I know you guys are from um, Philadelphia and Long Island. You came to New York. You met at UCB. Why did you decide to make a break and make a web series? And at that point, did you have any kind of master plan for what you were doing in your head, or were you winging it? I think in the beginning, for the first season of the web series, I don't think we had a bigger picture. It was just about... We were still in that mode of like being so in love with like finding your voice. Like, did you have yeah. a general concept of who the characters were? I mean, the characters are named Abby and Alana, so there's. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's us, but it's like we didn't like see these like poles that we have now. It wasn't. Um, it was more fluid. We were just. We were really just finding it. I, you know, you, you're obviously you've been working with Amy Poehler, and she helped you bring the show in. And I, I read that she said that your job was to be the policeman of your brand. And obviously, that's good advice. I was actually wondering what's the worst advice that you had on the show as you were trying to bring it in. So FX, I'm so happy things turned out the way they were. When when they were giving us notes, they were great notes, but they ended up passing because they felt that the show was too girly. So even like the pass, why they passed was terrible advice, but also great advice because I think the show, I I hope that we don't ever go away from female topics. Mm And that was almost like, no, I think you're wrong. Did they specifically specifically say that? Did they say, it's too girly for our brand? Someone said that. (laughs) (laughs) Or like that point was conveyed, I guess. Yeah, that was conveyed to us as like kind of why it didn't fit. And you know what? I'm like, great. Great. That's fine. It's okay for a, a network to skew male. So I want to ask about the origins of some of the stuff on the show, just as though we're on a, um, a DVD commentary track, just because I'm curious Love about it. the background. Love it. Deals, 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 I know, was based on a job that you guys had. Yeah. Our last job before selling the script. Underwater massage? Yes. Yes, that sounds intense. Great job. Killing it. Who's got more deals? Who else has a deal for me? Oh, Nicole, what's your deal? kind of obsessed with these DIY vajazzling seminars, and I feel like they'd be a really great fit for us. That is what I'm talking about. Do you guys smell that? Come on, sniff the air. Oh, what's that odor? I think it's the scent of a deal. Who's got more deals from you? Ooh, in the back, Alana, dope sweatshirt. What is your deal? I've been kind of obsessed with getting paid, and I was wondering if that's happening today so we could all be paid. <laughs> Checks, unfortunately, delayed till Friday. Bummer, FML, right? Speaking of FML, went on a third date with that girl from Match.com. I keep you guys updated. Third time, went for the kiss. Third time, rejected. But I'll try it. I'll get it. Let's get back to our desks. Deals don't make themselves. So Lucia Agnello, who's a writer and our main director on the show, wrote the copy for Deals, 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 basically, life, also known as Life Booker. Um... And she got it's us It's a big New York company. It's huge now. Lovely. Um, <laughs> and they were Check great. They, we, uh, 
we worked there and worked on the web series simultaneously. Have you gotten response from them to the portrayal on the show? I bet I they love it. I saw Dana in the street, oh, one right. of the founders, and yeah. she was like, it's hysterical. There's <laughs> a, so funny. There's a web episode called Work, and those that is like where we sat. We sat next to each other doing sales. Alana called salons and like waxing places in L.A., and I called New York. And then we would like G-chat and be writing Broad City. Uh, uh. Um, and like yeah. uh, we were so lucky that the... <laughs> Young people who were running the company were um, proud of us having a passion, mm. so they were really understanding. It we, was crazy. So we did this little festival at yeah, 92 My Tribeca where we showed a yeah. couple web episodes, and I don't know why they put our picture in the New York Times, and we freaked the out. They were so supportive. There was only like like ten people working when we worked there, and we came in and we like we had both and bought the paper. That's so great. So it was great. It was. Have you seen it? Have you seen it? Have you seen it? It's like stop. No, no sales today. No deals. We're in the paper. <laughs> oh man. Oh god. But they were like, this is so cool. They were so. Yeah, they were generous. really supportive. Have your conceptions of Abby and Alana changed over the course of the show? I feel like we more consciously separate from our characters. We think of them as a past version of ourselves, but it's it's bizarre the like it's awareness. Because I was asking sort of how they had changed over the course of the show, but part of what you're talking about is that you become different than they are. Because they are us. I mean, it's like so. It's like futile to try to distinguish it. But well, how do you differ from? It's kind of me. At 22, I feel like, even though I'm, even though it's, she's 26 and I'm 27, um, (laughs) now I'm 31, but, um, yeah, um, but, um, I'm, I like being in my thirties. It actually helps me feel like different from the character, but, um, yeah, it's a constant thing of trying to figure out, oh, well, who was I and who am I now and how would that character make a decision in that situation versus how I would? Um, I think we are much, we, the characters are much wilder than we are. Are the characters going to grow up over the course of the show or do the characters stay static for you? Because they're different models of comedy. I think this season was the hardest for us to write because it does, it changes. Because we had to make that decision mm-hmm. and we decided to, for them to like, Slowly grow. <laughs> Slowly, but... So I want to go to another clip, um, a dentist clip. You were doing an awesome job already. You just keep clutching Bingo Bronson. That Mommy Lonnie got you. Me. I'm Mommy Lonnie. And that's it. whole thing's going to be painless. You're not even going to know. You're going to be out, out, out. You just chill. So riddle me this, Doc. The mayonnaise clinic claims that facial paralysis can be a thing. What? Care to comment? Uh, release my head, woman. I got this. Abby's gonna be fine. Look at these black blue hands. If I mess up this white girl's teeth, the black dentistry game is over forever. I'm gonna get these teeth for my people. Wow. I don't do anything for my people. Count backwards. Bye, Abby. I'll see you when you wake up. And if you don't wake up, I'll still see you. Because I'm going to kill myself and meet you in heaven or whatever. 
sometimes I just feel like running the whole episode. Um, I wanted to ask you about um, race in the show, because there's a big ongoing debate in the comedy world about race and about appropriation and all these kinds of things. And your show is very diverse. Your characters are into hip-hop. There's been things like a Spike Lee homage. And I wonder whether you talk about this as a... I don't, I don't think we were talking at all about, like, cultural appropriation at all. Or race. I mean, it was no, just, it like, was like, who's, all, our, who's our favorite director? Yeah. And, and we're, we're, like, literally making a... Yeah. That have have we you gotten criticism for that? Not for the Spike Lee mm-hmm. thing, but I feel like um, I feel like we've like read here and there about you know these like white girls and their their language and Alana's language and you know it's like a bummer, but it's also like yeah, cultural appropriation is a bummer. Mm-hmm. So, but I think it's also you asked if the characters. <laughs> Right, it's if like, the characters I mean, it's like, what are we gonna like say? Like, no, it's cool. It's honestly, it's not cool. You know, yeah, so it's like it's okay to point it out and for it not to be cool in the show. And something we talk about all the time is like these. It is also something like, well, they are different from us, and we're they're not perfect, and they make mistakes. And I think that is part of Alana's growth and sort of the growth of the show, where it is like, well, who. Do I want to be doing those things? At least I at least want to make sure I'm aware. I, like speaking as a character, like oh, they're growing in not just in jobs, in actual like emotional beliefs and things. And the more the show is developed, and the more um, distinct we become from the characters, I guess the more they we're writing them as a tool. One of the things I find so great about the show it has this completely joyful filthiness and and this like <laughs> embrace of sexual adventure as freeing and silly thing and I wonder if you talk a little bit about like the sexual philosophy of the show and the sexuality of each of your characters which is a bit different I don't know people are like oof you guys are filthy and it's like I don't know it doesn't feel that filthy to us it's like it certainly doesn't feel serious you know like just in you saying that I'm like oh yeah like sex usually isn't like seen as Silly, or it's like so silly that it's not sexy, but it's like sexiness is silly because the fact that it's a new a new time, you know, it's like now it's a different time. Like it's just it's silly the way it's set up, so it's very easy to make it silly. But I think the reason people, some people like it, is because they do treat sex in that way, and that's what people talk about with their friends and how they talk about it. So. I think it's a very relatable thing. I don't know what you guys... Yeah, think. and it's also like, I feel like in general, the the show is like, even though everything is a big deal, it's also nothing is a big deal. Mm-hmm. Like the weed and, I, I don't know, these like elements that feel natural. But like, I guess on most shows, it's like, sex is so part of this narrative of like, getting the guy, where in this show, it's just for the purpose of sex, which it is more in life. It's just pleasure. So it's less of a... Big deal, even though it's so important to them. Yeah, they talk about it all the time. I mean, it's really like... <laughs> it, yeah, is a, it, it is, it is a constant, yeah. But, uh, but it's, not, um, it's not really central to the plot, I right, guess. Right. It's just um, uh, essential setting and context or something. Uh, we know that uh, Alana is into Abby. Is Abby into Alana? Like, what's Abby's sexuality vis-a-vis <laughs> Alana? <laughs> <laughs> you can address this either as the characters or yourself. It's fine. I don't. <laughs> no, I don't think so. And 
Yeah, me neither. <clears throat> me neither. No. Me neither. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, I kind of like. I and don't. Like I don't into. think she is. What do we? What do we mean here? Like. That's her number one. That's her number one. I like, I love that it doesn't always have to be, like, it doesn't always have to be a sexual relationship. Mm-hmm. And like, and it's like, oh, these are just two best friends. Even though it's sometimes hinted at with Alana, it's like a runner. And I also think Alana, it's like more based in romance than sex mm-hmm. with Abby. It's, um, they're primary partners, mm-hmm. you know? And they're, again, it's that like fiery early 20s when like, Everything's romantic. Moving to the city is romantic, even though it smells like <laughs> It's like, and yet they're so romantic about it. Like, I think it's that same thing where um, there's just that fire that, with this away. You're making an amazing television show. What are your, I mean, it's one of these things where I don't know how long the show will last. Do you have other plans? Yeah, we are. Are you are, working on a movie or? Yeah. We, yeah, we just, we just finished our first draft of this movie. Handed it and in. Sent it to the studio. You know. Thanks, you guys. It's that not, is nice. It's not, we're not in it. It's not Which like about us Which I think is more baller. It's like so boss. It's like with page, script pages. It's That's so what hot. we do. We hand it in like that. We're like, we're like come one, on, two, pick three, them up. Four. They're numbered. Exciting incident. Pick them up. Act one break. <laughs> Midpoint, baby. Lowest, <laughs> darkest to the soul, whatever. Um, and, and we have individual projects. Uh, yeah, I was wondering, do you want to do solo stuff? or? Yeah, it's fun to like talk about them with each other, too, because it's like we're still honing that broad city voice, but we also still, we're changing. So there's an individual voice to still be found, and those individual voices feed the combined voice in broad city or otherwise. Thank you so much. That was fantastic. And thank you to the wonderful audience. Abby Jacobson and Alana Glazer talking with The New Yorker's Emily Nussbaum. They spoke at the recent New Yorker Festival. I'm David Remnick. Still to come, The New Yorker's Kelly speaks with Mark Marin. Stick around. I'm David Remnick, and welcome back to The New Yorker Radio Hour. Next week, I'll be talking with the filmmaker Laura Poitras, who chronicled Edward Snowden's revelations of illegal NSA spying. We'll also meet musicians that David Bowie plucked from a small jazz club to play on his final record, Black Star. I hope you'll join us. Today, we're hearing three highlights from the New Yorker Festival, and now I'll turn things over to my colleague, Kella Fasane. What? So is this it? We're doing this? Yeah, let's just do it. Let's do it. Wait, no, they, they gave me this thing to read. Are oh, you going to welcome everybody? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to let you do your thing. Okay, I'm going to do my thing. Okay. Hi. My name is Kelly Fasene. I'm a staff writer here at the New Yorker magazine. I'm here with Mark Marin. Thank you. Just, just, in, just in case anyone doesn't know, he's been doing stand-up since the 1980s. He's Ooh. had... Two one-person shows, one of which the New Yorker described as heartbreakingly funny, the other of which the New Yorker did not review. <laughs> I don't even know which one that one was. He has uh, Marin, a TV show that's done three seasons so far on IFC. Yeah. He's written a book, and as a few of you might be aware, written two books, I'm sorry. It's okay. And as a few of you might be aware, starting in 2009 and continuing to this moment and onward into the future... 
he has recorded 642 episodes of WTF Thank with Mark Maron. Thank you. Yes, that's, that's all true. It's all true. So I can, six, I can validate all of that. 642 episodes. Yeah, it's crazy. Are you getting better? I, I think I am getting better because uh, I, I, I don't talk as much uh, during it. I think I listen better. And, uh, and, I, and I think I'm a lot more emotionally engaged. I mean, I, I'm, I'm crying for almost no reason. Like, people come and I'm crying already. And they're like, this is an interesting way to start an interview. And, and I'll just say, well, this is how it's going to go now. <laughs> there's there, there's this, uh, a story from one of, I can't remember, I think it might be in one of your books, where you, where you come off stage and someone says to you, why comedy? <laughs> yeah. Man, that guy... I was at, at that time, that was in the 80s, some, at some maybe 87, 88, and I was very aggressive. I was angry. It was not, you know, it, it was not necessarily everyone's idea of a nice evening out. And, and I'd just done this set at Stitches, I remember it, in Boston. And I'd just done this set, and I was pretty happy with it. And some dude just walked up to me, and he's like, why, why comedy? And I, and I could not answer him. I don't think I could answer him now, really. I, I, just, I, I thought that what I was doing was perfectly fine for comedy. I think laughs were an essential. <laughs> well, well that, that's, it was impact. It was impact. But you've often talked about this, right? That you weren't necessarily driven by this desire to entertain. <laughs> and somewhere along the way, you realized, oh, wait, this is supposed to be part of the job description. Like, I'm supposed to entertain people or people yeah. expect me to entertain them. Yeah, I, I always, like, kind of, I would always rationalize that by, if I'm not entertaining, I'll be compelling. I mean, I can be compelling. Like, if I'm on stage, you're not going to be like, this is boring. You know what I mean? Like, I'll, I'll, I'll be sweating. I'll be doing something. But... But I don't think I got into it to be an entertainer. I got into it to be a comic. Like a stand-up comic to me, I, from, in my mind, it, was just, it wasn't an entertainer's position. It was some sort of strange, noble, truth-telling place. It, I, I, didn't, I didn't think of it as an entertainer. I thought they were important people that did important thinking. Did you think of, but was making people laugh? I mean, how does that I figure in? I knew that was part of it. I'm not a moron. <laughs> I mean, like... <laughs> I wasn't like, I'm going to reinvent stand-up comedy so it's not funny. <laughs> that, that wasn't my agenda. <laughs> but I just thought that, in my mind, performing stand-up comedy was, was you could do whatever you want if, that, if, if the context was comedy. So I knew I had to get laughs. I wanted to be funny. I believe I was funny. I think I'm funnier now. But, but I knew you could do whatever you wanted up there. And to me, it was a place to figure out who I was, to figure out the parameters of the stage, to figure out how far I could push people, to, to basically get the parenting I didn't get. I was going to drag people through my childhood for as long as it took for them to accept me, and then i tell them to f*** off. <laughs> one, of the, one of the continuing narratives on your show is, and one of the things that I love, is when you get a young comedian on the podcast who has achieved some success and hasn't gone through 10 years, 20 years of hell on the road and in these comedy clubs. And there's a special skepticism that you bring out when you talk, when you talk to comedians like that. It's a nice way to put it. Do you think it's important that comedians go through that same kind of, of, of suffering, of tough rooms? Of- well, no, but, but outside of suffering, is, is it important for any creative person to pay their dues and figure out who they are? 
before, you know, we're dragged through their success. So... <laughs> when you say we're dragged through, you mean as fans? Whatever you want to call it. And, and back when I started... God, am I that guy now? Back in the day... <laughs> You can only do comedy at a comedy club, so you have to wait around, and you have to wait for their dumb open mic. Now anyone, anyone who's been on stage for seven minutes is like, I'm doing comedy. No, you're not. You're not. You're, you're, you're some guy that went on stage for five. It, do I take it as an insult to what I do as a comic? Fuck yes, I do. <laughs> you know, do I have to shut my mouth about that generally? Kinda. <laughs> I'm happy if people are, you know, like, you know, taking improv classes so they can, you know, uh, be around people better. I'm, I'm happy if, if you, you know, experiment all you want. But it's like, you know, I'm a guy that committed to it. So if somebody's sitting before me and they don't treat it with the respect that a lifer has for it, then fuck them on some level. They can try to talk me out of it. And a lot of guys turn out to be, you know, geniuses and they're great and I love them. And, and, and sometimes what you're hearing is not so much skepticism about a lifestyle. It's just old guy jealousy. So it's just like anything else, dude. You know, you know as, as, as a lifer, it's, it's hard to hear someone disrespect it or take it for granted. Part of what goes on in comedy and has always gone on is that when someone achieves a certain amount of, sta- of success in stand-up, there's an industry that wants to take them from stand-up and have them do something else. I've been fortunate to avoid that. So, <laughs> Well, sort of. Of all the things, right, when you record that first episode, I think it was with Jeffrey Ross on the phone, right? Yeah. Of all the things that went through your head, I can't imagine that one of them was, this thing might become so successful that I become slightly jealous of my own podcast. <laughs> right? I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty insane. Yeah. What... What were like? I'm still trying to wrap my brain around that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, it is insane. I think at the beginning, I had no idea what we were up to. I just knew I needed to keep doing something, and and that I liked radio a lot, and that for some reason, whatever I did on those mics connected. I don't know what that was, but I knew it from when I did uh, talk radio. Like I would go, like there was this thing once. I I remember the time that it happened where, like, we were doing political talk radio at 6 in the morning on Air America. And because we had to do news, I had to get up at, like, 2.30 or 3 in the morning because I don't – it takes a lot for me to wrap my brain around that, you know. So we just spent four hours, you know, trying to get this news together and, you know, focusing my anger on stuff. Right around the Republican National Convention in 2004, like the night before, I decided to trap five feral cats and bring them into my house. And it became so much more important than politics. And I was so relieved by it. So I started talking about the cats. And then I started talking about, like, one time I let lentils cook too long. And, and it created this sort of weird tar-like substance. And, like, like, and I just was aggressively going through it because I would drink, like, two Dunkin' Donuts coffee and I'd eat all these M&Ms. And I just, like, rambled on for 15 minutes about lentil tar and my, and my, and my cats. And I started getting these emails, like, that was the most compelling shit I ever heard. <laughs> I don't know what you were talking about, but man, I was in. I was in. <laughs> and I'm like, whoa, whoa. 
maybe I got something with this thing. So, so I, that was what was going on with that. Like, I didn't know what that show was, but I loved the medium. I liked audio, and, and, it, and, I, and it's, it's a gift, you know, to be, to be good at something that you didn't expect. And, and even if with all my speech impediments, my dumb stuttering, you know, like, there's something that still comes through. I don't know why. But, but I loved it, and, and I didn't know what the show would be then. I certainly didn't know at that time. You, you know, I was desperate. I was desperate. But, but the format didn't change that much, right? I mean, it was, it, it, it kind of, from the start, was you talking a little bit into the microphone and then having a conversation with a person. Had people around, had people around. Because when you do morning radio and you got a crew, there's nothing better than that. There's nothing more exciting than doing live morning radio with a bunch of people in the room. Like, you know, it's easy to condescend, and I've done it myself. But a good morning crew, there's, like, that's a big job. You got to hold an audience who don't want to be awake. And... <laughs> <laughs> and they're probably going someplace that they don't want to go to, and their life is not what they planned. And you're sitting there going, how's everybody doing out there? Here we go. It's a hell of a job. Uh, and, but I needed people around. I needed people to laugh. I needed to be able to look at somebody. The day I learned how to talk on a microphone alone was one of the best days of my life. You know who's the best at that? Rush Limbaugh. Now, like, I don't like to admit that. But, you know, as a radio guy, you know, you listen to that guy pause, and I don't like listening to him, you know. I, I don't like it as much as any liberal who listens to Rush Limbaugh. You kind of like it because it makes you go, Aah! So, <laughs> I, think, I think 25% of his listeners are liberals going, Dah-er! So, so that's a pretty compelling personality. But, but the day that I learned how to do that, just talking freely to nobody, alone, in my garage, and it was comfortable. I was like, this is it. I freed myself, and, and I became a, a broadcaster in my mind. And then it just became the conversations, because you know, I needed to talk. And, and when did you realize that people were coming to your stand-up because they liked WTF? Well, that took a while. You know, I mean, we could see the numbers. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can see how many people download your thing. You know, and I was aware that, you know, that if I talked to somebody who was a big celebrity, that, you know, we, we'd bring people to it. I'm not going to pretend like, oh, who knew that Robin Williams would, you know, like, so, so there was, you, you know, there were definitely people that I struggled to get. It was not easy to book necessarily because no one knew what a podcast was. And a lot of people were like, no, I guess Marin's kind of hit the bottom. Uh, I always liked the guy. I'm going to go, I'll help him out. Like, I don't... I, I don't think Louis C.K. had any idea that anyone was going to listen to that thing at all. Which is, I mean, which is part of what made that so intense. We have a, should we play a, a little clip from uh, you I having was, a conversation it, with Louis C.K.? It always hurts me a little, but yeah. In my I could have used you. I could have used you. I got divorced. I got a show canceled. You know, I had some tough times. I could have used a friend. But you didn't During those times, you, that were you, making, those times that were making you jealous... I was struggling. I was having a hard time. But, 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 doing, doing the Louis show was really hard. But, but, trying but, to keep but, my family together was hard. But, but the thing is, is that in, our, in, in the way our friendship always operated, it was not that I was kept up to date in the day-to-day things. It wasn't a day-to-day call that we had. But it seemed that most of the time, the thing that made our friendship so deep and so strong was that when we did talk, we made each other feel better. No, it's true. But you shut me out. You shut me out because you were having a hard time. Okay. And, well, I apologize again. Well, I apologize to you because I, then I did it to you probably out of resentment. We, right, ignored so, your emails because you ignored my phone calls back when there was no email. We, well, can we get back on track or what? Yeah, I think we can. 
I think it's the first time I noticed he said that. That you ignored my phone calls back before there was no email? Is that what he said? <laughs> <laughs> when was that? Uh, the worst part about hearing that is he, but, 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 but. <laughs> I just can't handle that. But no, let me just try and smooth this over. This can't be this bad. Well, but that's when, I mean, in theory, right, this is like two comics talking about comedy. In practice, this is nothing like that at all, right? This is the kind of conversation we never get to hear in any context. And (laughs) even if you don't care at all about comedy, I think anyone would find that compelling. No, I I agree. I I never set out to do a, you know, making the sausage podcast. I mean, that's just a way to get somewhere else. I have a great deal, like, comics, like, all they do is sit around and think all day. That's their job. There's very few things they can't speak to. Well, most of them are, are pretty intelligent people. Some of them are, are incredibly sensitive, most of them. They're like, you know, they're philosophers. They're poets. They're people that live life in a way. They, they, they're not great, obviously, you know, emotionally in relationships all the time, but... um but I, I never set out to make a, a, a sausage-making podcast, so it never t- struck me that Louis and I were going to talk about comedy. I just wanted – I thought I had a very personal take on Louis's career because I saw some of the stuff that I experienced with him as being defining, and it was. And then it went this other direction, and we're, we're good now. I mean, it was a very – it was a good conversation. We're very close now. Like, uh, you know, he texts me a lot, and we were talking a lot for a while – and now he's busy, I guess. <laughs> I'm busy too, but like I get texts. You know, he'll be like, uh, "How you doing, pal? Be a pretty good buddy, you? I'm good. That's good. <laughs> Love you, man. Love you too, buddy. We do that. But I did- could text him right now, and he'd probably respond to me. <laughs> Let's put that to the test. Go ahead. I, was there a point where you started realizing that these conversations were having an effect on your life, were, were shaping your life, the conversations that you were having in your garage? Yes. Are you kidding me? <laughs> oh, I just wrote he, pal. <laughs> All right, let's see what happens. I wonder if that's the right number. Um, look, you know, I need to talk. It's the way I process things. I'm not good at processing without talking to people. And when I started the podcast, when I moved to Los Angeles, it was not good with me. You know, I was darkly depressed. I was severely heartbroken. I was incredibly bitter. But I needed to talk to people to reintegrate myself with my friends, to reintegrate myself with the community of artists, which I'm wary to use that word. But, you know, I, the community of comedians, artist is a weird word to me. I don't know why. I don't know why. I don't like calling myself an artist. I'm a comedian. So, uh, Whatever. See, like right now, who am I arguing with? (laughs) You see what happens if I'm not talking to somebody else? Okay. So there's also something within recovery concept, actually. And I, I don't mind being public about that. But, you know, when you talk to somebody else, you get out of your own head. And, and it engages your empathy. It engages your compassion. It, it also is entertaining. You know, I, I had a very, you know, uh, uh, a very charismatic, fairly, you know, emotionally dangerous father. And, but, like, he was very compelling. And, and I spent my life, you know, seeking out, you know, charismatic people to, to sort of, like, just use as a battery. You know what I mean? Like, 
Like, I, I like to be entertained. I like when people are engaging. I like to be engaged. And, and so I think, like, the first hundred or so podcasts were really just me inviting famous people over to help me with my problems and, 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 and to sort of glean some of that energy. And, uh, and, and I just, I, I, I love it. One of the questions that you answered on the show this year is, is the question of who is harder to book, Lorne Michaels or the President of the United States? <laughs> Turns out the president is easier Tur- to book. Turns out the president easier is, to is easy, easier to book than Lauren Michaels. Let's roll the clip of Obama, and then we'll take some questions from the audience. Listen, I, the, I'm a big fan, and you know, I, I love conversations like this because you know, if, if I thought to myself that uh, when I was in college that I'd be in a garage yeah. a couple miles away from where I was living doing an interview... As with, president. As president <laughs> with a comedian... <laughs> I think that's a pretty hard scenario to... Uh, Couldn't imagine it. It's not possible to imagine. No. It is not, no nobody could imagine. And so, guess, so that's fun. Well, yeah. And, and I'm also like, you know, I, you know, I pay it. You know, I don't, you know, there was a period where I was uh, a little more attentive politically, where I, right. you know, I ran the country from my couch for a couple of years. <laughs> uh, a, a, lot lot of, people. a lot of people do. <laughs> Yeah, I hear from them all the time. <laughs> you idiot! Why? Why yeah. aren't you doing it this way? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah I heard from them this morning. <laughs> I, yeah, I've got I got nothing but emails from people telling me what I got to say to you. Unbelievable! It's a big day. It's a true honor that was. It's a true honor that was. That, you know, like I can't even quite wrap my brain around it because you know people. You know, a few people who interviewed me around that, they said, so are you going to be interviewing, um, you know, candidates? I'm like, no. I interviewed the president. Why would I interview those people? When they're president, I'll interview them. President asked me to talk to him. What an amazing day. So if you've got a question, uh, line up at the microphone and... Uh... This guy's ready. He's ready. <laughs> Hi, Mark. My hey, name is Roy. How are hey, you? Roy. Good, man. What's up? Um, a little more about President Obama. Yeah. You know, you, you didn't have a president, a guy in a suit. You had Obama. Yeah. And love or like or not like his politics, he's a bright guy. He's yeah. the first black president in our country. Mm. When, when, when he left and the Secret Service left and they were all gone and it was just you in the studio, what was going through your head? It was me and Brendan. And uh, I... I cried. Okay. I know it. <laughs> <laughs> Comedian and podcast impresario Mark Marin talking with the New Yorker's Kalafasane. At NewYorkerRadio.org, you can find that interview with Lorne Michaels, the legendary head of Saturday Night Live, episode 653 of Marin's podcast, WTF. 653. This is episode 15 of the New Yorker Radio Hour. And I hope you've enjoyed it. If you listen to the show by podcast, please take a moment to rate it on iTunes or wherever you subscribe. And you can drop us a line at newyorkerradio.org anytime. Next week, we'll meet the band who played with David Bowie on his final album, Black Star. And I'll talk with Laura Poitras, who made the film Citizen Four about Edward Snowden. I'm David Remnick. Have a great week. The New Yorker Radio Hour is a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Our theme music was composed and performed by Meryl Garbus of Tune Yards 
The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported in part by the Cherina Endowment Fund. <laughs>